0: Well, in this series, what we're doing is we're looking at different parts of the Proverbs to try to have some wisdom in the midst of dizzying times. And I think we could all talk about all the different ways our culture feels dizzying. But one of the dominant features of our current culture, you could call hypersexuality. Just a hyper-focus on sexuality in all different kinds of areas of life, we're, we're, it's all over media, it's all over commercials, it's all over songs, it's all over movies, um, it's all over articles and, and ads and lots of different things like that. Um, every there's innuendos all the time. Uh, you can't really watch a comedian just about without it being a hypersexualized set of comedy, right? It's just this hypersexualized moment that we live in. I don't know that it's unique to. Uh, world history for sure, but it's definitely significant in our time. And so the question is, what's the path of wisdom in the midst of that hyper-sexualized culture? That's what we're going to try to look at, and it's actually a theme that the Proverbs talk about quite a bit here. Chapter 5, about half of chapter 6, and all of chapter 7 devote themselves to this, and it makes sense because it's a father trying to give wisdom to his sons. And and if a father is going to give wisdom to sons, one of the areas he's got to talk about early and often is sex. That's the context of this is a father saying, hey, son, and this is thousands of years ago. Hey, son, there's some dizzying stuff out here. There's a hyper-sexualized reality even then, and son, you need to have wisdom. And so if we're going to have wisdom, we have to look at this. And so we're going to dive in just a moment into chapter 5 and this this warning against this world of lust and this sexual sin. That's where we're going to go. But before we do that, I think it's helpful if I get out on the table some assumptions that I have in bringing this message today. First one is this. Sex is a good thing that God created which has been distorted by sin. We have to know that. Sex is part of God's good creation, but it's been distorted by sin. Sometimes people in the church or people who have grown up around Christianity or Christian subculture have got this sense that sex is bad, sex is icky, sex is gross. You should stay away from it. You don't talk about it. It's ugh. no. Sex was created by God. One author said God thought in his mind of a perfect world, and it included sex. It wasn't a result of sin. It's not an icky thing. It's a good, beautiful, precious, awesome, amazing thing that's been distorted by sin. So sin does get in the way of our use of it and our experience of it but it's fundamentally a good thing. Second assumption I have today is this. Sexual expression is not necessary to be fully human. Now that may go, what's that about? Well, What that is about is there's this belief in our culture that in order to really be human, in order to really be fulfilled, in order to really kind of be who you are, you must express yourself sexually. Whatever sexual desires you have, you must act on them or you are not being true to you, which means you're not being truly human. And, and, and I just wanna say no, no, why? Because if that's the case, there's this guy named Jesus who did not act on sexual desire, did not express himself sexually, and he was fully human. Right? To say that you have to express yourself sexually in order to be human is to say Jesus wasn't human. To say Paul wasn't human. No. No, our, our humanity is inherent in being made in the image of God and our focus is not on expressing ourselves sexually or in any other way in order to prove that we're human, but our role is to actually live in relationship to God our Father who created us in his image. Just as Jesus lived in relationship with his father. So that's our top priority. Here's the, the third assumption. Is that pursuing purity will only get more difficult. Right? It just feels like this train is flying. It's going fast. Right? It's this sexual revolution. It's all this momentum. And if you want to live a life of purity, it's going to get more difficult, not easier. And so this message today, I'm not going to say everything you could ever say about purity or about sexual sin or about any of that stuff. This is just kind of beginning that conversation. But but it's not going to get easier. Then here's the fourth and the last assumption. This is a really important one. Is that everyone above puberty is a sexual sinner. So I'm not talking today, I'm not giving this message to those of you who are sexual sinners as if there's a bunch of you who aren't. Because everyone who's above puberty is a sexual sinner. Everybody who's above puberty has misunderstood or misloved or misapplied their sexuality or their thinking behind it in lots of different ways. Some people are caught up continually in sexual sin, some people it's more a thing of their past, but for a lot of us we are very much Regularly fighting this reality of sexual sin. What's interesting is none of us want to admit it. Right? We don't want to talk about it. It's kind of like stare straight ahead, (laughs) don't move. So that's what's so interesting about it. We're all dealing with this, and no one wants to talk about it. That seems like a path to folly. So we're gonna talk about it today. And I've got a series of questions. The first question before we dive into this passage is what is sexual sin? What is sexual sin? You know, this passage is going to talk mostly about adultery and going into the arms of a forbidden person, but sexual sin really is broader than that. I've got a list of things. This is not an exhaustive list. This isn't everything you could think of, but sexual sin includes the following things, and maybe this will even help you if you're like, well, I don't know if I'm a sexual sinner. I'm above puberty. Well, let's take a look at this. <laughs> so sexual sin, one thing would be sexual activity outside of marriage. Any sexual activity outside of marriage is sexual Sin. And there I'm defining marriage as between one man and one woman as God created it. Any kind of sexual activity outside of that is sin. Sexual sin also involves emotional affairs. It's kind of romantic emotional connections that we make with people who are not our spouse and we find that to be fulfilling and we kind of begin to live out and share things that maybe we shouldn't share that are really more intimate in nature. Those kinds of emotional affairs can be sexual sin. Fantasies and lustful thoughts are sexual sin. If you're imagining things or imagining people, people you know or people you don't know, and using those thoughts in order to bring yourself sexual pleasure even in your own mind, that's sexual sin. Using pornography is sexual sin in all its forms. So it might be images, it might be videos, it might be written, it might be audio, it might be music, right? There might even be songs that you would never think of as pornography because they're played on the radio, but they're depicting and describing sex in a way that, that is not really a good way. It could be pornographic. There's creating and distributing pornography. Now you think of that, you go, okay, you're thinking of the adult industry and you're thinking about that stuff, but, but what, about, what about selfies? Here's something to memorize, okay? Selfies are for faces. <laughs> okay, selfies are for faces. Let's say that together, all right? <laughs> selfies are for faces. If you don't know what a selfie is, don't worry about it. But for those of you who know what that is, selfies are for faces, right? And if you are taking images of yourself to intentionally highlight other parts of your body that would garner attention, you are creating and distributing pornography. That's what it is. Self-stimulation almost all of the time is sexual sin. Dressing in intentionally provocative ways is sexually sinful. Now, I wanna be clear here. It's not a sin to be noticed by somebody else. You can't really control that. What is a sin is to dress in ways that are intentionally provocative, trying to elicit some sort of reaction or gain attention with your body or your looks. Same-sex sexual activity is also a form of sexual sin. Again, not an exhaustive list, but I think now you'd look at this and go, okay, yeah, everyone above puberty is a sexual sinner. Now, the next question is this. What does sexual sin offer? And that's really kind of what this passage is about. The father saying, hey, kid, watch out because sexual sin is offering you some stuff. Now, just before we talk about what sexual sin offers, just think about what sin offers. And I like John Piper's quote about this. He's an author and pastor. He says this. The power of all temptation is the prospect that it will make us happier. No one sins out of a sense of duty. Right? Isn't that exactly right? No one's like, well... I don't want to, but I have to sin. They're making me, right? Like that never happens. What temptation is, is hey, 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 won't this be good? Won't this be satisfying? Won't this make you happy? Won't this be great, right? There's always an offer of temptation or it wouldn't be tempting, right? Few people are like, I'm so tempted by that broccoli, right? (laughs) But there's a pumpkin pie in the fridge over here that like it was been really tempting, Right? And I'm like, I'm not having it. But, but I want it because it's enticing, right? So the nature of sin is it's enticing. It's asking you to, to participate in it because it'll make you happier. Now, that's exactly what uh, Solomon here writes to his son in chapter five. Look at chapter five beginning in verse one. He says, my son, be attentive to my wisdom. Incline your ear to my understanding that you may keep discretion and your lips may guard knowledge. For the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey, and her speech is smoother than oil. Now, we live in a day where we're like, honey, oil? Like, hold on, I'll be at the grocery store and I'll be back in like 20 minutes with my honey and my oil, right? But, but in this time, honey and oil, especially good oil, was precious was rare. You didn't have it very often. It was a a treat, right? And so what this is saying is that sexual sin offers honey. It offers oil. It offers this rare thing that you can't get anywhere else. It offers this precious, intensely sweet, intensely satisfying thing. That's the illustration. That's what it offers. Now, that makes sense if you just think about what sex offers, because sex is very pleasurable, Right? And so you could go, okay, sex is just offering pleasure, but I think it's actually helpful if we, if we kind of dig deeper and go, but what is it that, that these sexual sins are offering us, besides just the f- raw physical pleasure part, what else are they offering us that really are saying, hey, 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 don't you want this? Don't you want this? And so Tim Chester has a great book called Closing the Window, where he talks about fighting pornography. And in that book, he lists out a number of things that sexual sin offers. They all begin with R. First one is this, recognition. Yeah, sexual sin offers pleasure, but but what kind of pleasure? Well, often it's recognition, especially when you feel unnoticed and overlooked. And anyone who's married and anyone who's not married has times where you feel unnoticed and overlooked. And doesn't it just feel good for someone else to notice? To recognize, oh, you got your haircut. Oh, are those new shoes? Oh, you you look great. Right? That that attention, even if to the people who mean it, they mean it just totally innocently or totally innocuously, right? We might actually receive it and have our hearts kind of gripped by it, like, oh, I like being around that person. That person notices me. That person sees me. I feel invisible everywhere else, but that person. That person sees me. Recognition is part of what's offered in sexual sin. So is respect. Respect when you feel insecure, when you feel inadequate. Right? This is a major thing uh, for men, and men are not the only people dealing with sexual sin, but for men especially who really you know, are driven by respect, that's one of the things that these fantasies and that pornography and that people who aren't your spouse and don't know what it's actually like to live with you like, you ever wonder, like, why is the person at work? Why is the person at the gym? Why is the person at church? Why is the other person in your small group actually so attractive to you? Do you know why? Because you don't live with them. And so this person, you don't really know them, but, but man, they respect you. This is one of the allures of pornography is, is you don't have to have a real relationship with somebody, but they look at you longingly. And they think, man, you're really tough. You're a real stud, right? That sort of a thing. And that's the that's the thing. Is it's not just about the physical part, it's also about I just want to be respected. And in this fantasy, even though it's not real, I for that moment I feel respected. Another thing that we want is relationship. Especially when we feel lonely. But 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 what's hard is we know relationships are work. You gotta talk. You got to spend time. You got to like, help out with stuff. You got to like, build a relationship. That's hard. We want the microwave version. We want a, a kind of false intimacy that comes through these sorts of sexual sin where I can just have this person who's with me and this companion, even if just in my mind, and that can make me feel like I've got a relationship without having to do the real hard work of it. We also are tempted by the refuge sexual sin offers especially when life's pressures mount and it's tough and it's difficult and it's stressed and you're overworked and you haven't been getting enough sleep and you haven't eaten great or exercised, and it's oh it's just all the pressures mounting and this provides a refuge this provides an escape this provides a release this provides some way for you to just get just a little bit of joy and happiness in the midst of what is otherwise a really difficult life it's a refuge it's also a reward. It can be a reward when you're bored, when you're stressed, when you feel like you deserve it. Oh, I've been doing really good in this area of life, so you know what? I, I kind of deserve to indulge this a little bit. And it can also be revenge, a way to get back when you're angry and frustrated, when you've been sinned against, When someone else has committed sins of any kind, but especially sexual sins, this is a way to get back. Well, I'll show you. Now, here's what's so interesting about this list is that sexual sin to a degree all delivers on it, right? If you want recognition and respect and relationship and refuge and reward and revenge, you're gonna get some form of it. Right? Otherwise, it'd be like, well, I'm not even interested. No, it's going to deliver some. But what the Proverbs is always trying to do is to say, don't just look at the right now in front of you. Look at the long term. Look at the future. Look at, at, at the long term results of this. And when we look at the long term revol- results of this, we have to ask this question. Well, what does sexual sin deliver? If this is what it offers, what does it actually deliver, not just in the short run, but in the long run? And that's really what this passage is about, right? Verse 3 says it offers honey and oil. The rest of the chapter is describing what it actually delivers. And the first thing that it delivers is that it looks sweet, sexual sin looks sweet, but it leads to bitterness and death. Look at verses 3 and 4 and 5 for the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey and her speech is smoother than oil but in the end she is bitter as wormwood sharp as a two-edged sword it's interesting both of those illustrations wood, this wormwood and this sword are both things that are bitter and can kill you Right? that's what wormwood is it's this kind of wood that tastes real bitter but if you ingest it especially if you ingest much of it it can kill you, it's lethal Same thing with a sword, what does a sword do? A sword is lethal, right? So it, it promises honey and oil, it delivers wormwood and death and a sword, which is the point made in verse five. Her feet go down to death, her steps follow the path to Sheol, that's another way of talking about death. She does not ponder the path of life, her ways wander and she does not know it. And so sin looks sweet, but it leads to bitterness and to death. There's a fascinating book uh, if you want to understand the nature of temptation and some of the deceitfulness of even your own heart by C.S. Lewis uh, called The Screwtape Letters. And in that book, which is uh, Lewis imagines this senior demon writing to a junior demon named Screwtape about how to kind of be a really good tempter. All the different things he has to do to try to lead his, the person he's assigned to astray. And one of the things that Lewis says in that book is that one of the ways that the devil enslaves us is by uh, creating in us an ever-increasing craving for an ever-diminishing pleasure. is that interesting? An ever-increasing craving for an ever-diminishing pleasure. So you want it more and more and more and more, but when you get it, it's not as satisfying. And so you want more of it, and you want it to be more extreme, and you want it to be more violent, and you want it to be more whatever it is. This is how it works with all forms of addiction. This is why the person who, you know, when you first get drunk, it doesn't take that much. Once you're an alcoholic and a drunk, it takes a lot. Right, when you dabble into drugs, you're dabbling and you get high. After a while, you gotta take a lot more and it's more dangerous. It's the same thing with sexual sin, with fantasy. When you when you just have that kind of flirty conversation, ooh, that gives me a high, that feels good. But after you've had a few of those, well, now it takes a little bit more, and you have this ever-increasing craving for an ever-diminishing return. Why? Because in the long run, sin can't deliver anything but death. But there's more. Sexual sin... Wastes your time, your energy, and your money. Some of you are like, okay, now I'm interested. Money, I don't want to waste my money. Verse seven, and now, O sons, listen to me and do not depart from the words of my mouth. Keep your way far from her and do not go near the door of her house. Lest you give your honor to others and your years to the merciless. Lest strangers take their fill of your strength and your labors go to the house of a foreigner and at the end of your life you groan when your flesh and body are consumed. What's he saying? He's saying, listen, if you go down this path of sexual sin, if you go down this path of adultery, it's gonna cost you. You're going to give your honor, you're going to give your time, you're going to give your strength, and you're going to give your money to someone else. Think about this for a moment. How much does an affair cost? How much do the lawyers cost? How much does the child support cost? How much does another house cost? How much does all the childcare and other things that you gotta do to be able to handle multiple family, how much does it cost to have an affair? It costs a lot. And there's a saying, if you look at the long run, it's not not worth it. It also leads to remorse and to shame. Verses 12 to 14. And you say how I hated discipline and my heart despised reproof. I did not listen to the voice of my teachers or incline my ear to my instructors. I'm at the brink of utter ruin in the assembled congregation. Here's what he's saying. No one can say, I had no idea this was wrong. I had no idea. No one told me. You can't say that. Instead, you have to say, I'm so stupid. They told me it was like this. I knew better. That's what's so scary about it is we all know better, but sin is so deceitful that it still gets its tentacles around our hearts. And think about what happens if you have a life filled with remorse and shame. Not only do you experience that remorse and the shame around this issue, but what else don't you do because you're just so self-focused on your remorse and your shame? There's a great article by John Piper called Gutsy Guilt. And in that, pipe, in that uh, article, here's what he says about this. Not that the, the tragedy of sexual sin isn't the sin itself. He says the tragedy is that Satan uses guilt from these failures to strip you of every radical dream you ever had or might have. You hear what he's saying? Saying you used to wanna change the world for God. You used to wanna love people. You used to wanna pour yourself out. But, but now, this sin has so beaten you up you're, You're so guilty, you're so ashamed, you're so powerless, you're so weak, that you've just given that up and just settled for a comfortable life trying to minimize and manage your sin. That's the tragedy. There's more that this chapter says. Sexual sin is also against your spouse. That's what it says in verses 15 to 20. Verse 15, drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad? Streams of water in the streets? In other words, listen, you, if you're married, you are committing sin against your spouse. You might go, whoa, no, wait, whoa, wait, wait. I'm just thinking stuff. She doesn't know, he doesn't know. It's still against them. Listen, your spouse is the only legitimate form an expression of sexual intimacy in your life. Let me say that again. Your spouse is the only legitimate expression of sexual intimacy in your life. So if you are finding expressions of sexual intimacy imagined or acted on that are not with your spouse, you're sinning against your spouse. You're also sinning against others involved in their spouses. verse 20. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? In other words, there's another husband at home for her. And you're not just sinning against God and you're not just sinning against the person you're sinning with and you're not just sinning against your spouse and you're not just sinning against your body and your future, you're also sinning against their family. The destruction just ripples everywhere. Sexual sin also may seem secret, verse 21 tells us, but it is seen by God. For a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his paths. Some years ago, I heard a story that a college pastor was telling about this couple that had been dating in their ministry, and they were struggling physically. They were too involved sexually more than they should. They weren't married. And... Uh, he kind of knew this was going on, and so he said, hey, I need to meet with you, and they came in and they met with them. he said, hey, I need you to know, somebody saw you guys and what you were doing. And they're like, "Who? what? what? Like all the color drains out of their face. They're like, what, what happened? Who saw us? Right? These are leaders in his college ministry. Who saw us, what is it? Right? He just can feel the panic. Was it our parents? Was it someone else in the ministry? Who saw, what what happened? And he says, God saw you. And their reaction is the way our reaction usually is. They went, oh. Oh, well, okay. (laughs) Right, And, and when that's our reaction, we don't understand who God is. We don't understand the reality of sin. We've so minimized it. We've so gotten comfortable with it that if we say, a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his paths, and we go, huh, interesting. No, no, this is scary. God knows all our ways, all our thoughts, all our actions. That's the most severe form of punishment. More than any cost you'd pay in divorces. It's that, God's seeing what we do. Well, finally, two more things. It's enslaving, verse 22. The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him and he's held fast in the cords of his sin. He's, we're stuck, right? We get in this place where it's addictive and it's ensnaring and, it's, and it enslaves us and we can't get out of it. And then finally, it leads to death, verse 23. He dies for lack of discipline and because of his great folly, he's led astray. Here's the thing, we know all that. Like did I really tell you anything that you could go, i would never heard that, That's, I've, never, I've never thought of that. No, you've thought of it. But in the moment, it's hard to think of it. And so how do we have wisdom to pursue a path of life, because that's what this whole thing's about. Look at verse six. The, the key thing with this adulteress, this forbidden woman, is verse six. She does not ponder the path of life, right? She's not thinking about the long term. She's not thinking about the future. She's not thinking about like, what ultimately matters. It's just here and now. What can give me the most bang right now? And so if we want to experience the path of life, we've got to ponder that. And this passage tells us four ways that we can pursue the path of life. We do not have to live in the folly of impurity and sexual sin. We can begin to experience more and more freedom and more and more hope and more and more change. And this passage tells us how. The first one is this. We need to relate to one another. Relate to one another. That's what this whole chapter is, right? get this, sin grows in the dark. Sin grows in the dark. This is, I've given you a couple good slogans. Selfies are for faces. (laughs) And sin grows in the dark. This whole chapter is the father saying to his son, son, we're not going to let sin grow in the dark. We're going to talk about it. We're going to be real about this. I'm going to actually Talk to you. And Solomon had real struggles in this. This was not like this big area of victory for Solomon. This was him telling his son, hey, son, we've got to talk about this. So here's this thing everybody's dealing with, everybody's struggling with, nobody's talking about it. Meanwhile, the sin is growing in the dark and the enemy's laughing. So we pursue the path of life by relating, by talking about it. By discussing it, not with everybody, not every detail of all of our temptations and sins with every person, but finding a few safe, close people of the same gender who you can talk about these things with. We have to relate to one another. We also have to run from it. Look at verse eight. Keep your way far from her and do not go near the door of her house. Flee it, run, right? This is the mistake we make. We go, well, I'm gonna try to wrestle with my sin. Not this one, run from it. The New Testament says flee sexual immorality. Joseph is a great example of this in the book of Genesis where Potiphar's wife, it says day after day after day, was saying, hey, sleep with me, sleep with me, sleep with me, and he kept resisting He kept trying to keep his distance, and finally she cornered him, and he got to the point where she was like, come on, take me to bed. And what did he do? He ran. She grabbed a hold of his clothes and he ran off butt naked, it says in the text. It doesn't say butt naked. It just says naked. <laughs> but he ran. That, that was, that's the Hebrew. <laughs> he was like, I would rather run through the streets with no clothes than pursue. And, and think about this. This is Potiphar's wife. Powerful man. Powerful men typically have young, beautiful wives sleep with me, sleep with me, sleep with me. And what was going on in Joseph's life? Joseph had been sold into slavery by his brothers. He'd had these dreams and everyone forgot about it. Right, he's having all this stuff happen. Nobody remembers him. If there was ever a time that you go, you know what? I don't even know if God sees me down here. I don't even know if God cares. You know what? I deserve this. And here's a beautiful, wealthy woman who wants me. I'm going for it. And he didn't. Why? Because he ran because he knew the eyes of the Lord watch. God sees, he said, I'm not gonna sin against God and I'm not gonna sin against you and your husband. We have to run. And the best time to run, by the way, is before the moment. You can't go, well, I'm gonna, I'm gonna get online and then run. I'm gonna go over and talk to that person and then if it gets a little dicey, I'll run. No, run before. Run away before. Here's the third thing, is we have to rejoice. We have to rejoice. This is not just about what we avoid, but it's what we indulge. And what it says we are to indulge is sexual intimacy with our spouse. Look at verse 18. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. Th- these verses could almost come directly out of Song of Songs, which uh, teenagers in the Middle Ages were not allowed to read. I mean, think about that. That kind of makes you blush a little, like, <laughs> right? Like the, the junior higher in all of you is like, Let her breasts fill you. (laughs) Like it seems kind of, whoa, are we allowed to talk about that? Yeah. Yeah. Here's what it's saying. It's saying pursue sex in marriage. Great sex, satisfying sex, thoughtful, loving, passionate sex within marriage. Pursue it because that's one of the ways you fight against sexual sin. Now, here's the thing you have to know. Ray Ortlund Jr. is this godly, godly man. He's a Presbyterian pastor, um, and I remember one time watching he and his wife in a panel, and they were talking about marriage, and she said this incredible thing. She said, great sex is the fruit of a long marriage. And I was like, sounds cool. <laughs> I like, right? You think, oh, oh, no, it's just early on and you know you, you know, you have sex in the first year and then you never have sex as much as you had that one year and it never, you know. Not in a great marriage. It should get better. It should get more passionate. More thoughtful. Not just because that's God's great gift, but that's also how he gives us protection from sin right, I, I, yesterday our RC got together we were watching football and hanging out and one of the guys in our RC had smoked like for 12 hours he'd smoked this brisket right and I was like this is going to be my meal today I was like a snake you know a snake like just eats once and like doesn't need to eat again for a while I'm like I'm going to just get stuffed on this brisket and not eat again really the rest of the day Right? And, and later in the afternoon, it'd be like, hey, do you want some more food? I'm like, no, I'm full. I don't need more. I don't want more. I'm stuffed. What if we got stuffed, sexually speaking, with our spouse? Satisfied. That's what it's saying. So we relate. We got to talk about sexual sin. We run from it. We flee it. We also have to rejoice. And then finally, we have to Repent repent. See, sexual sin is this thing that holds us fast. Look at verse 22. The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him. He is held fast in the cords of his sin. He dies for a lack of discipline and because of his great folly, he's led astray. See, we 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 are stuck unless we experience the freedom of the gospel. Unless we experience the freedom that Jesus came to give us. That is what we get when we repent. Why do you want to change? Why, why do you want to see a difference in your purity? Why? Is it to prove yourself to God? God, I really do love you. Is it to prove yourself to someone else? Like I'll, I'll show my spouse. I'll show my accountability partner. I'll, I'll show that I can, I, I'm going to change. Is it to prove it to yourself? You know what? I'm better than this. I can do this. I just got to do it. You know what's wrong with all three of those approaches? Is they put you at the center of your change project, which is pride. You can't be at the center. You repent because the Lord that you love sees and was punished in your place. You repent because the people you love are impacted negatively by your sin. You repent not out of selfishness, out of love. Why do you commit this sin in the first place? Selfishness, not love. Don't try to fight it with more selfishness. Look outside of yourself to the Savior. Look to the one who, I just think about verse 22, and I think about Jesus. The iniquities of the wicked ensnared Jesus. Not his sins, but ours. He came to submit himself to the punishment we deserved. Jesus was held fast in the cords of our sin. Jesus died for a lack of our discipline. And because of our great folly, he was led astray and crucified. That's how much Jesus wants to redeem you, wants to forgive you, wants to cleanse you, wants to empower you to a new life. This does not have to be the permanent place where you just stay stuck forever. Jesus can and wants to give us freedom. Here's what it says in Romans chapter 8. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh... God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. He's saying, listen, if you just try to make rules out of this, it's not going to work. Because rules just agitate your sin. You see the wet paint, don't touch. I just want to touch it. The law is powerless to change you but God sent his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh but according to the spirit. It's saying, listen, you can't just add rules to this and get pure. You have to look to the Savior who was made impure for you so that you could receive his purity and live a new life. We could rewrite this verse based on this particular issue and say it this way. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sexual sinners to be an offering for sexual sin. And so he condemned sexual sin in the flesh in order that the righteousness requirement of sexual purity might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh but according to the spirit. Listen. If you are in Christ, you're a new creation. If you're in Christ, your sin has been washed away. If you're in Christ, there is a new hope and a future for you. And it's not because of you. It's because of him. I know this is a heavy topic. I know this is a difficult thing to hear. I know it raises all kinds of questions and stirs all sorts of things. But one of the things I hope it stirs in us, a room full of sexual sinners is worship to the God who forgives us, who cleanses us, who unites us to him, who welcomes us home. And that's what we're going to do here in just a moment. We're going to worship. We're going to praise. We're going to celebrate. Not that we changed ourselves, but that Christ changed us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your word and for how you shape us through it and how you point us, even in these Old Testament passages, to Jesus. The one who was ensnared and held fast, the one who died in our place for our sin. And so now, Lord, would you grant us freedom and forgiveness and power, a new life and a new hope, New relationships to even begin to talk about these things with. New wisdom to see when trouble's coming and run from it. New joy that we might find in our own spouse. God, we want to honor you in these ways. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.